Hi everyone, my name is Lucas Mack and welcome to another episode of The Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. Today I have on Stephen Elliott. He's an army veteran of Afghanistan and he's also the author of the upcoming book, War Story, which comes out May 21st. He's, he's a patriot, he's American, and he's a beautiful soul, and I'm glad to have him on the show today. Stephen, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Lucas. So tell, tell us, uh, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from uh, central Kansas, a little town called Hayes, Kansas, that for folks who have driven along Interstate 70, usually to the Rocky Mountains, probably stopped for gas at one point or another. So not a whole, <laughs> lot, uh, not a whole lot going on there, but, uh, but yeah, that's where I grew up. That's, that's where all my family is from. And um, when, at what point growing up, did you decide you wanted to go into the army? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I had, I think, like a lot of kids, um, I was I had a robust GI Joe collection and could yes. turn all manner of household items into a weapon if if necessary. Um, but I had, um, I don't say outgrew that, but but that was not uh, as I entered adolescence and went into college. That was not uh, my plan. I I planned on. Uh, I studied business in my undergrad and, and seriously considered going to law school. Um, my, my mom's dad, my, my grandfather, uh, Hugo, he was a veteran of World War II. Uh, he served in Italy on the Italian front for a year and a half. Wow. He's kind of the closest thing I had to a dad. And so, um, you know, his influence and I think seeing his life um, as an adult man that started with military service, I think that always made a, a big impression on me. Uh, but I had dismissed it, um, you know, going into school. I had, I had other things I wanted to do. Uh, and then my junior year of college, the very beginning of 2001, uh, 9-11 happened. Mm. And so um, that, that definitely changed my thinking quite a bit. Um, I didn't have, I mean, I had opportunities, but I, I kind of saw my, um, the rest of my life sitting in an office flash before my eyes and um, kind of felt that. Uh, this was my generation's fight, and uh, I, I I needed to serve, mm -hmm. and so um, so that was really it was it was really nine eleven that kind of precipitated you know my decision to enlist, and um, I finished my undergrad uh, May third of two thousand three. I uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree, and on May twenty first two thousand three, I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, starting basic training. Wow, wow! First of all, and I. I'm sure you've heard it before, but I want to say thank you for serving. And it's, it's no small thing. I don't take it lightly that you willingly, even though you might've, you might've loved it and it might've been your calling and all that, but thank you. Thank you for choosing to go and, and serve. Yeah. So you're at Fort Benning. What, at what point did you decide where you wanted to go as far as your military career? Um, well, I kind of decided that um, as I was evaluating the very decision to enlist in the first place. And so um, I read a lot of books. I talked to people, um, and most notably um, a uh, close family member who had spent 30 years uh, and retired as a member of Special Forces, the Green Berets, and just talked a lot to, to folks and, and tried to avail myself of um, knowledge to figure out, you know, what I would want to do. Um, and I kind of came to the, the conclusion that I didn't know if the military was a career for me. Um, I didn't 
I didn't want to close that door necessarily, but I, I just didn't know. And I knew that um, I didn't want to sit behind a desk. Um, mm-hmm. I had plenty of opportunities to do that uh, with a business degree. And um, so I think my, um, my decision to serve was definitely, uh, uh, there was an element of uh, a desire to, to, to serve in response to 9-11. Uh, but I mean, frankly, it was also, I think, my own uh, self-imposed rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was also um, me uh, looking to give something just as much as it was me seeking something and seeking my own uh, affirmation, my own uh, manhood, if you will. Uh, I think my my relatively simple logic was that if if I go to war and if I go to combat, um, then I know that I know that I'm a man. And uh, I never put it in those simple terms. Um, nowhere was that written in my journal. But uh, in, in, in retrospect, I think that that assumption was kind of baked into a lot of my decisions. And so, um, so yeah, having done all that, it really came down to um, enlisting um, either with, a, uh, with effectively an SF contract, um, they call an 18 x-ray contract or a ranger contract, which is uh, they, at the time called an 11 x-ray. Um, and so I, I opted for the latter. Um, I wanted to be um, at the proverbial tip of the spear, uh, as the saying goes. And I'm sure I had watched Black Hawk Down at least one too many times. And so um, that's where I wanted to serve. I figured, um, you know, if I, didn't, if I didn't recycle any of the training and if I didn't get hurt, um, I could be rather quickly uh, in into the Ranger Regiment, and if all I wanted to do was was serve there, then that would be enough for four years. Yeah. And if I wanted to do other things in the military, that would afford me a, a springboard to do all manner of things. And so that was that was essentially my my thinking, and uh, that's what I did. So I enlisted. Um, you know, uh, the term contract as it applies to military service is a pretty fluid concept. So because everything is governed uh, by, you know, depending on the branch, in this case, needs of the army, which is to say, we promise you everything in this contract subject to needs of the army. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's appropriate. Um, so yeah, I had a quote unquote ranger contract, which all that meant was um, I had um, a shot uh, at uh, Ranger Selection, uh, similar to BUDS. Uh, they called it RIP at the time, the Ranger Indoctrination Program. And so um, that was what I went in uh, to do. I went in, uh, everything else leading up to RIP was basically a pretext for what I had joined for. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, that's uh, kind of the short version of how I, how I made that decision and, and uh, what I ultimately you know, wound up finding myself doing at Fort Benning. You know, you said you, you uh, going into the military was, you know, you becoming a man or, you know, yeah. in hindsight, that was, you know, what you were going in for. You know, tell me about life growing up and why, why you found that that would be the validation for you and as far as your worthiness or your, your validation as a man. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I don't know how much time you have, but um, there's definitely a lot of, lot of ways to unpack that. I mean, I think, you know, I didn't have a dad in the home growing up. My folks, they divorced shortly after I was born, um, was raised by my mom. It was just her and me, didn't have any other siblings. And she was um, a phenomenal parent, uh, is a a phenomenal mother, you know, to this day. And, and um, I was not, I was not deprived of anything, if that makes sense. You know, like, um, uh, there's so many folks who dealt with so much 
harsher circumstances in their um, in their growing up years. And, and even though my dad wasn't around, um, I wasn't one of those. I mean, I had my grandfather. I had a lot of other extended family who um, had a, had a big support network. Um, but I think um, to some degree, I think I carried around a, a bit of a father wound. Um, and I think I, I think like a lot of things, a lot of um, motivations. There's there's light and there's dark um, um, pulling and pushing. Um, there's uh, things that drive us and things that invite us. And I think for me, there, there was certainly a, um, probably a more positive invitation um, or desire to, to serve, um, similar to how my, my grandfather did. Um, and also probably a similar um, negative push to want to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Having never had that um, traditional validation, you know, by a dad in the home, and so um, you know, I don't know how to sort all that out. I don't know, you know, what to assign to each column, but I, but I think both of those things were were certainly operating, and I think to some degree, um, the military in general, regardless of the branch, um, offers a little bit of um, a shortcut to the perception of manhood. Um, because you can literally find yourself doing something that our culture, uh, the media, um, immediately ascribe as some of the most difficult, tough, quote unquote, manly things that you can do, um, which is um, a narrow truth, because um, there's no question that, um, you know, getting yelled at by Ranger Cadre and jumping out of airplanes and doing all those other things, you know, requires something of you. but uh, so does being a husband and so does being a father and so does being a friend and so does being uh, an employee and an employer and, and all of those things um, require um, significant metal and commitment um, that frankly just isn't very sexy. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. it's not very sexy um, changing diapers and putting kids to bed. Um, it's not very sexy, um, you know, filling out your time card, um, accurately and honestly. And so, um, you know, they literally give you medals you get to wear. (laughs) You can literally put on your clothing, your accomplishments in the military and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that that's a, um, it's a dangerous thing because then we can, um, too easily, um, ascribe and say, well, gee whiz, look at that guy, you know, army ranger, Navy seal. I mean, they're tough. They're maybe they are. I mean, no question, but, um, you know, how's, how's their home life, you know, yeah. how are yeah. relationships? Because that's, that is just as equal, if not more a test of manhood. And I think I had even at times you get to unpack a lot of things over the years, uh, assumptions and just thought patterns and, I think I sort of had this idea that, you know, if I went in the army and, you know, got yelled at by some mean people and did some hard things and, you know, ran around and, you know, did whatever, I would sort of be like getting the hard part of my life out of the way. <laughs> it sounds strange way. It's like, well, I got that done. So uh, it's just all downhill from here. And uh, while there is an element of truth to that, I have yet to have anyone in an office environment uh, force me to do push-ups or flutter kicks for you know. Anything. <laughs> um, I'd walk out of the room if that was the case. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so th- there is some small element of truth to that, but there's just a much larger element that is missed in that. Yeah, that's one expression of being tough, whether you're a guy or a gal. Um, it's not even excluded to men. 
but there's a lot of other skills and a lot of other things demanded of us um, as humans. Yeah. And I think I was probably looking for a bit of a shortcut. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating that um, it, yeah, it doesn't matter where we come from. What, everyone has a need to feel validated in, yes. in themselves. And so, you know, that makes sense that that was your path. And um, so for people listening that don't know much about um, Army Ranger School, I mean, that that in and of itself is a tremendous feat that you accomplished. That, that is something that cannot be taken away from you. That's amazing, you know, and being able to navigate terrain like you, you do and understanding just <laughs> – hills and you know nature as as you need to understand that um walk people through what what army ranger school what is an army ranger for people that are listening that may have never even heard the term perhaps it's a great question um so yeah to kind of make it's kind of a, a unique distinction in a way because there's two kind of critical titles um one is that of uh, uh army ranger and that uh, the other is that of being quote unquote ranger qualified so as if the military isn't confusing enough for civilians i'll throw this at you so um if you go back to uh if, if i may offer some historical context please um, yeah drop it so um if you go back to world war ii um the United States was, you know, later to the game than the British in entering the war. Um, and the British had already established their own sort of commando unit called the British uh, SAS. And the United States uh, wanted to do likewise. And so then what happened is there was two schools of thought. Uh, one school of thought was we want to select uh, the best, brightest, most elite, whatever. And we want to make units comprised solely of those individuals to go out and do commando stuff. Mm. And there was another school of thought that said, no way, because we don't want your special people, uh, your elite units, robbing the big army of some of their best leaders. Mm. So um, one school of thought said, we want our own little special units. The other school of thought said, we actually just want a, a training school that people can go to receive leadership training and then come back to their units. Hmm. And so what happened is you got both. So you had Ranger regiments that were stood up, Ranger battalions that were stood up in World War II. And then you also had Army Ranger School, which were two different things, same yeah. name. So if you watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan, um, uh, Tom Hanks's unit, they're portraying 2nd Battalion Rangers. So they are, um, you see the, the patch on their shoulder that is a, a blue shaped diamond that says yeah. Ranger on it. They are one of those special Ranger units, um, but they are not necessarily Ranger qualified. So it's a little, little strange. So you fast forward to today, what you have is you have, in order to be an Army Ranger and wear the, the tan beret, which today is the, the headgear of the Army Ranger, um, you have to, um, after you've completed all of your other training to do whatever you're doing in the army. I was an infantryman. Most Rangers are infantrymen. Um, you go to, um, at the time, what was called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program. It's, it's similar to BUDS for the Navy SEALs. It's a selection process to get into the unit. Once you've completed that, um, about uh, two thirds of the RIP 
folks um, don't make it. So it's about a third of the folks who are in it make it on average. Once you complete RIP, you are an Army Ranger. Um, you are assigned to one of the three range battalions. You can be deployed. Uh, you're training. You're functioning as an Army Ranger. Hmm. You are not yet Ranger qualified. Hmm. And so that becomes the next step in your career trajectory. So I never went to Ranger school. Uh, I was never Ranger qualified, uh, but I did complete RIP and I served as a member of uh, 2nd Ranger Battalion uh, in Afghanistan. So wow. what, what, what happens is you get to your Ranger Battalion, um, nobody is fawning with congratulations for the fact that you made it through RIP <laughs> because <laughs> it's kind of just getting going. Because yeah. uh, the policy at regiment is that, a ranger regiment, is that, um, yeah, you're a ranger by virtue of completing the selection, but in order to really solidify your career and hold any leadership position within the regiment, to be a team leader, squad leader, whatever, you have to be ranger qualified. Mm. And so what happens is you get to regiment and pretty much instantly you're preparing to go to ranger school. Mm. And ranger school is run by a separate group of folks um, separate and distinct from the regiment, but obviously there's a lot of overlap. And so, um, so that's a little bit of the difference is, you know, Ranger school is, uh, it sucks. It's 60 some odd days of, uh, you know, food and sleep deprivation and leadership training. And, um, you know, RIP is, um, not 60 days now it's a two month course and, um, also not a lot of fun. Uh, and they, they both serve distinct, um, they both serve distinct purposes within special operations community and the ranger community right now, it sits within what's called SOCOM. Um, that's not just a video game. It's an actual organization, special operations command, and they have purview over everything from Rangers, Delta, uh, Green Beret, special forces, SEALs, et cetera. And so that's, um, that's kind of where the Rangers sit. Wow. Most of the, um, the Delta Force operators in the Army, uh, Delta is uh, like SEAL Team 6. They're a t what's called a Tier 1 unit. 90% mm. of your Delta operators uh, came from Ranger Regiment. So that's mm. the, the regiment is a feeder for Tier 1, just like in the Navy. Uh, SEAL Team 6 is fed by all the other SEAL teams. Um, so that, that's kind of how it works. So when you're, were you hoping, I mean, I know a lot of, I know a lot of warriors that, I mean, I listen to Jocko podcast mm -hmm. all the time and, and, uh, you know, you want to get, you want to get out, get after it and you want to, you want to be in the mix and, you know, you're trained and this is what you're doing. And so when you, uh, first were deployed, did you, did you know, was the, was the Iraq war happening at the time when you were getting deployed or was were we in Afghanistan uh, primarily? Was that where? Yeah. So I, I got assigned to second Ranger battalion uh, at Fort Lewis, Washington in November of 2003. So when I joined, I joined the army with what they call delayed entry contract so I could finish school. When I joined, there was no Iraq war. Got it. Um, and then as 2002 turned into 2003, that became evident that that was going to change and that wasn't exactly what I had signed up for. Mm. Um, but at that time, I didn't put a ton of critical thought into it because I had sort of already made the commitment. And um, I was mainly focused on that. So, yeah, when I, um, 
by the time I um, I got to regiment was in 2000 uh, November 2003 uh, Iraq war had, had been pretty fresh like you know there was guys um, at battalion who um, some guys who were getting out because they'd been wounded in Iraq um, but but literally at that time when I got to second bat uh, we had just, Second Bat had just finished its first deployment. Uh, well, that's not true. It finished just a couple deployments to Afghanistan and had just finished a deployment to Iraq. So mm. um, both of those wars were very new. And, um, you know, part of my thinking as well um, in going in as a ranger and going enlisted, because uh, I could have gone as an officer, uh, which is um, kind of, I guess, tragically hilarious now in the year 2019, is that I didn't want to miss the war. Hmm. So, um, a little did I know that special operations units would effectively be continually deployed to this day for almost 18 years. Um, and that's its own, uh, issue for lots of reasons, but, but yeah, Iraq had just kind of got kicked off and, um, things there, um, the, at that time, the, there was still optimism for, Hey, we're in, we're out just like we were in 91. Um, but that optimism was certainly, as 2003 turned into 2004, things like Abu Ghraib happened, um, that optimism was, was certainly beginning to fade. And, where, and so where was your deployment? Where was your first deployment? Yeah, so I trained um, uh, with, uh, with my platoon, um, Ranger platoon, um, from November until April of 2004. And then in April 2004, uh, our company uh, was deployed to the Afghan-Pakistan border um, as part of what they call a spring surge. So um, mountain passes start to open up. Um, you know, a lot of the um, activity of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda was, um, uh, uh, I guess, fermenting, created, um, seeded in the tribal regions of Pakistan. And so when those passes opened up, um, then there's a lot freer movement of those fighters into Afghanistan. So we were deployed um, specifically to conduct uh, raids and patrols um, along the Afghan-Pakistan border in April of 2004. And so I think, you know, this is, uh, I definitely want to talk about your book because you have, you have quite a story once you're, once you're there. Um, you know, you, your book um, called War Story, you know, what, what led you to write the book? What's the book about? And what do you hope you know, people take away from, from your journey? Uh, it's a great question. So um, the, um, the basic thing I would say is that um, if the book is worth reading, which um, I think it is, um, I'm biased. Uh, if it's worth reading, it's worth reading, um, not because the story is unique, but precisely because it's ordinary. Um, uh, I'll tell you in a moment, um, sort of a unique variable that um, even makes my story of interest to the media and the powers that be in the publishing world. And so that's something that we're keenly aware of is the fact that, you know, what I experienced though, you know, all of our experiences are nuanced and unique um, that in, in so many respects, um, I'm not the first to be motivated and idealistic in serving and going to war. Uh, I'm not the first to experience um, loss and the pains of war. And I'm certainly not the first to come home with unseen wounds of war, um, the likes of which um, can be just as deadly as those that we can see. Yeah. So um, that's sort of a, the, the, the bigger picture of war story. The specifics are that, um, you know, the platoon that I served in uh, at 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, in that platoon uh, were two brothers, um, Pat and Kevin Tillman. 
Um, Pat had gained some notoriety at the time because he gave up a, a multi-million dollar contract extension uh, with the Arizona Cardinals uh, in favor of enlisting in, in the Army and becoming a Ranger. And then his brother, Kevin, um, did likewise, uh, not giving up a, an NFL contract, but um, he was playing minor league baseball, and he and, uh, he and Pat joined together. And um, when I got uh, second bat, um, ACO second bat, um, second platoon um, in November of 2003, um, they were two of the first people that I met. Mm. And so uh, I was assigned to the same platoon as them. And then um, I was specifically assigned to what's called weapons squad. So I was part of the M240 Bravo machine gun teams. And so Kevin Tillman and I, we worked together every day uh, in that squad. So we all deployed together. And then uh, on April 22nd, 2004, um, our platoon was ambushed um, in the, the confusion uh, and a variety of you know, mitigating circumstances within that, within that firefight. Uh, four, four casualties were sustained. Uh, two of those were KIAs and, and two, were, um, two were wounded. Um, one of those that was killed uh, was Pat. And um, all of those casualties were sustained as a result of friendly fire. Um, one element of our platoon mistakenly believing that another element of the platoon uh, was part of the ambush, uh, was part of the enemy element and treating them in kind. Mm. Uh, we don't know today um, with uh, any certainty uh, who fired the, the rounds that killed Pat, uh, but what we do know, from what we know, uh, it's likely that uh, there are one of two rangers in the platoon uh, likely responsible for his death. Uh, and I am one of those two men. Um, I know with certainty that, you know, rounds from my weapon, uh, you know, wounded um, our radio transmission officer. Um, it uh, blew his knee out. And if it wasn't for his body armor, he'd be dead today because, uh, because of rounds that I fired. Uh, but I don't, uh, I know that I, I fired at Pat's position, but I don't know if my rounds were the ones that, that actually killed him. And so um, that is um, not necessarily... Uh, death in war is not unique. We've lost over somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 service members in combat uh, over the last 19 years. Uh, Pat is one of those. Um, fratricide is not even all that unique. Um, the first, I think, 17 casualties in the Iraq war were all as a result of fratricide. Um, so it's not to and what, and what does that term mean? Just for friendly fire. Uh, it just means it's not, um, it's not somebody knowingly firing on comrades. It's somebody believing that they are firing rounds, releasing a rocket, what have you, on an enemy position, and then finding out later that they were actually firing on friendlies. Yeah. And so that's exactly what happened with us. Um, so the upshot of the book, um, that's the, um, I guess that's the unique variable that I spoke of, is, is the only thing in my story that makes it particularly unique is the fact that one member of that story happened to play in the NFL. Yeah. Um, if you remove that variable from the equation, um, it's not to say that I, I wouldn't have written a book um, or people wouldn't have been interested in it, um, but that is certainly kind of the primary piece of interest is, is you know, my association with Pat, um, albeit for, you know, some of the worst possible reasons. And can so, I, can yeah. I interrupt? I would love to interrupt you for a second because I did not know that. I wanted to have you on um, because I, I did hear that, you know, you experienced blue on blue, as they say. Um, um, but I'm just happy to have you share your story, regardless of who, you know, unfortunately was the, the, 
you know, the recipient of that because you have a story that it needs to be shared and you, you know, are worthy of sharing that story. And I'm sorry those circumstances happened. And yet, um, because you're sharing your story, less of those circumstances will happen. Um, and I appreciate you coming on. And I, I want you to know, I had no idea that Pat Tillman is the Tillman brothers were even part of this story. Um, yeah, yeah they are. So, and I, I, think, I appreciate you saying that. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like they were, they were, I didn't even know, honestly, I didn't have cable when I was in college. Um, I worked all the time and, you know, um, I was an ESPN junkie in high school and then in college I wasn't, I didn't really even know who he was. Um, um, I knew he looked different than the rest of us because the rest of us, I looked like I was a soccer player. Uh, he yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a big buff so too. Yeah. He sort of stuck out a little bit. Um, but uh, they were just, they were just good dudes. You know, yeah. they were just guys yeah. that showed up, did their job and um, they were just good guys to work with. And um, all that's come as a result of, um, you know, of his death and, and all of the negative uh, implications of that are, um, I mean, we can talk about that for hours, but um, the, the upshot of that, as far as why the book, I mean, that's 2004. Um, I didn't, um, I didn't handle that very well. Hmm. So um, I was going into that um, a pretty type A achievement oriented. Um, if I, if I attempted something, I attempted it because I had um, a statistically significant chance of success. And if I didn't, I didn't attempt it. Um, and, um, you, as much as you can, you know, I was one of the, it was weird, um, in hindsight, you know, it was 15 years ago, I was 22 at the time and, um, myself along with our platoon leader, who's Lieutenant and Pat and Kevin, uh, we were the only four guys who had been to college and had graduated. Mm. And, um, I was one of the oldest guys in the platoon at 22, wow. which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, and Pat and Kevin were two of the, the even elder statesmen. They were a few years older than I was. Um, but they, um, and I was going with that thought, but the, the point is that I was used to achieving what I wanted to achieve. Yeah. And as much as you can at the ripe old age of 22, having watched whatever movies you've watched and heard whatever stories you've heard from other veterans, you try and prepare yourself for the idea that, um, maybe I won't come home. Uh, maybe I'll get hit, you know, physical wounds, et cetera. What I never prepared myself for and never had a concept for is that I would still be physically alive, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually um, completely torn to shreds. Hmm. And um, I was, you know, going into that. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I was a follower of Jesus. And um, as a result of what happened in, in Afghanistan, um, I began to develop after the shock wore off. Um, you know, I, I left, uh, second range battalion, um, and, uh, began to pretty much consistently exhibit, you know, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And so, um, you know, all of it, the nightmares, the hypervigilance, you know, et cetera, uh, began to medicate with alcohol, never really drank before, not cause I was prude, but I just didn't care for it. Um, and over time, the concept of an all loving or, or all powerful creator, um, just seems pretty ridiculous. Mm. Um, when you're kind of in the middle of, of your own pain, um, when you're in the middle of 
having caused that pain in some weird way, uh, but then also having had other leaders who put you in that position, um, there was no, no element of math calculus I could do to think my way out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't unthink the wounds. Um, I couldn't do any of it. Uh, I just became really angry. Um, I was really hurt and um, I just wanted to stop. And so, you know, my story, war story is really um, a story of, you know, my, you know, my, my lead up, my time, um, you know, leading up to war, um, the time we spent at war, um, and then really um, the, the battle following me home. Uh, and from 2004, uh, you know, till 2009, um, uh, I, we went through, um, I was married um, uh, to my wife, Brooke. Um, because of, you know, my, um, unwillingness to get help. Um, I became a very high functioning abuser of alcohol. I got out of the army in 2007. I was a wealth manager with a big firm. I uh, had a great job, good paycheck. Um, and, um, uh, I was still one step away from the foothills of Afghanistan every day. Hmm. And, um, I walked away from the Lord, um, in my own bitterness and in my own pride and my own ego. Um, my wife and I were divorced in 2009, uh, with God's grace, we reconciled and were remarried in 2010. Wow. Um, and then, uh, throughout that process, um, the Lord has just continued to, uh, to heal. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the point of the book, um, is just to tell that story. Um, and you know, uh, frankly, Pat's in it. Um, uh, it's not about Pat. Um, yeah, he's yeah. a friend and a, a great character in it. Um, but, but the reason we're even doing it is because like I said, um, the story's not unique. Um, so mm -hmm. we have, um, we have 22 or so veterans a day that make the faithful choice to kill themselves. Um, yes. and, yes. and that, uh, is on top of, divorce that's on top of job loss that's on top of you know that's the, that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of dysfunction and in yes. terms of uh, in terms of all of that yes. and uh we were right there so um you know we were a casualty in that um at the end before you know i turned a corner um i was seriously contemplating suicide not because i didn't feel like i had something to live for i was just so tired mm. i just wanted to sleep i just mm. wanted to rest mm. and i just wanted to put the war behind me and i didn't know how to do that and, and so um, you would call that, I guess, politely a hard reboot of the system. Um, yeah. That's the only way I knew how to close down the application as it were. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we were rescued from that. And our hope in writing the book is not simply to um, tell a sad story or, you know, leverage Pat's fame or any of that crap. The yeah. whole point is to put that in service of this broader issue, which is um, untreated, poorly treated mental health care for our active duty military. Not simply for our veterans, although that's an issue, we're talking about care at the point of trauma. Uh, yes. One thing that every veteran in the VA who has sustained a wound has in common is the fact that they sustain those wounds while, while in active duty. And so just like if I get a gunshot wound in Afghanistan in 2004, there's an escalating series of treatments that I get from my battle buddy applying a tourniquet to maybe me having surgery at Walter Reed. Mm. The same needs to be true on the mental health front because effectively um, I suffered the equivalent of uh, an unseen wound, a gunshot wound in 2004, 
and I packed it up as tightly as I could with the bullet still lodged in there. And I didn't even know it was a gunshot wound until five years later. I had no language to describe it. And like any wound that goes untreated, um, trauma and woundedness begets trauma and woundedness. That's right. So eventually you're dealing with things that in and of themselves are difficult. Divorce is horrible, but that's just packed on top of untreated trauma. The same with, with physical wounds. Mm. And so that's our hope is that, um, that in telling the story, we create, um, a hook, um, for a broader conversation about, um, policy change within the DOD. Um, and also, um, frankly, just helping, uh, hopefully to give people permission to do exactly what we're doing. Um, not because I'm so courageous, um, this, frankly, the process I've gotten used to it, but, um, since the first time we gave an interview, uh, five years ago, um, seemed like pretty much the worst idea I could possibly think of, uh, because I had spent the better part of 10 years, um, hoping, praying, hiding that questions around my military service and polite conversation would never somehow force me to lie about my association with Pat. So if you would have told me um, even five years ago that I'd be here having this conversation with you, I'd, I'd say you're crazy. Mm. Uh, and so um, it's, not, it's not because uh, we're some shining example of anything. It's just because Sorry. It's okay, brother. It's because I don't want others to suffer as I had. And I don't want people to hide like I did in their own pride, in their own isolation, in their own fear. Because that's what it was for me. I had financial resources to get all the counseling in the world that I wanted. Uh, I had people who loved me, who would have happily talked with me, prayed with me, supported me. I was so scared and I was so guilt ridden. I was so shame ridden that what I did was so um, uh, unforgivable and couldn't be understood um, that I I hid. And, um, uh, and, and frankly, that's muscle memory um, that folks who were um, in the military generally who were in combat arms specifically and who were in special operations units, even more specifically, that sort of muscle memory is what tends to be rewarded. Yes. You have to basically squelch a lot of pain just to get into the unit. And so you don't get taught very well uh, the appropriate times to raise your hand and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing okay. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I'm fit for a straitjacket. It doesn't mean that I'm not combat operational, but, um, I'm not doing okay. So that's, that's really where it comes from is just um, if this story helps um, anybody um, feel like they're not alone. Uh, If this story um, helps any spouse feel like that there is hope because there is. uh, And if this story can help move the needle in any way in how we view the unseen wounds of war for, um, for our warrior class. um, That's what we want. That's why we're doing it. Brother, you are a courageous liberator of souls. And the world does not need more macho men. It doesn't need more tough guys. It doesn't need more stuffing pain. It needs more courageous liberators of souls. And you are one of those. And the greatest enemy to freedom 
enemy's greatest freedom is shame. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, you know this. Yeah, it's true. Shame was your greatest adversary to your freedom and you being, I, I am redefining vulnerability to mean the courage to experience love in its purest form. Yeah. And that we've defined, we've used this word vulnerability as an exposure to pain. And I, I reject mm-hmm. it is that vulnerability is courage in the face of shame to stand and receive the love that actually is, is waiting for us. And you sharing the story and you standing in the gap is, is you have always been a vessel. You will always be a vessel. And that vessel is for healing. It wasn't for death. It wasn't for toughness it wasn't for getting titles or badges or or accolades it's you have always been a vessel for healing Mm. and you would not know healing unless you knew death you would not know life unless you knew death you would not know we cannot know it's impossible you know genesis 1 1 in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth genesis 1 2 and the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of deep like but genesis one, three, and God said, let there be light. Right. We cannot know light unless we first know darkness. It's, it's yeah. truly, you, brother, are, thank you for being courageous. And whatever shame and whatever, all that, you get, just keep standing. I stand with you. I didn't, like I told you, I didn't know. I, I wasn't interviewing you. I just, you know, we have a mutual friend who I love yeah. dearly and, and connected us. And I said, okay. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, this is not, this is the beginning of your story. Mm. Even with this book is the beginning of your story. Mm. You have a long story ahead of healing and to stand in the gap and, there are so many people living with shame and it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a war veteran to have that trauma. You can be an abused it, it, pain is pain is pain and shame right. tells everyone to stuff it down deep and bury those secrets to the grave. And, right. and what you're doing is you're pulling people out of their early graves by sharing this story. And I, I'm, I just seen you through this. Obviously we're just meeting, but I want to yeah. tell you, I'm proud of you. I'm mm. proud of you. I'm proud mm. of you. Mm. I'm proud of you. And I don't know those brothers, but I do know that if they knew what the, their cost of sacrifice was for to liberate millions of souls, because you are able to share this story, I know they would say, sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. Man, seriously, brother, thank you. And, uh, man, I get choked up. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how uh, I just want to we'll close with this. How can people um, how can people find you and get in contact with you? And I will also put all the information in the show notes as we wrap. Yeah. But uh, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so they can go to um, actually um, just launched today. Timing is good. Um, they can go to uh, ElliotFund.org. Two L's, two T's, and Elliot. Uh, ElliotFund.org um, is a website that we're we're directing people to um, for two things. One is um, education, um, resources, um, on the issue itself that we're tackling, um, as far as active duty, uh, you know, mental health, um, um, policy reform. 
but then also, uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing with the book is um, we're uh, any financial proceeds that would otherwise go to me, we're giving them away. And so um, the Elliott Fund itself is simply a nonprofit organization um, that receives the book proceeds and then turns around and writes a check to other partner organizations uh, in the same sector, effectively. Mm -hmm. So if they're looking at one of the things that we need people to do, um, certainly they can read the book. The book will drop on May 21st. Uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, for pre-order if people want to do that. Um, um, whether they read the book or not, um, and my publicist will be mad I say this, I kind of <laughs> don't care if you read the book or not. Like, I do. That's great. It's, yeah. I, I think yeah. it, it's, a, it's a worth, worth your time. But um, really, the postscript of the book directs people to the Elliott Fund site um, to sign a petition. Um, so we've drafted a petition um, that will be sent to uh, the, um, uh, the Secretary of Defense and the chairmen of the Armed Services and uh, of the House uh, Armed Services Committee of the Senate and the House, uh, detailing the 17 specific policy initiatives that we would like to see enacted uh, to reform how active duty mental health care is um, is seen, viewed, etc. So, if you do nothing else, if you never read my book, if you never hear me again, um, go to ElliottFund.org, uh, click join the fight, um, take a look at our petition, and if if you see fit, please please lend your name to that uh, because your voice can be heard in that way and in, in, in helping uh, uh, helping in this cause. Amazing. Well, thank you for for joining and. Um... We'll look forward to continuing many more conversations together. Likewise, Lucas. Really appreciate having me on. My pleasure. What an incredible story and what an incredible man. I don't know if you had heard about the Pat Tillman story, but it made a lot of national headlines for quite a while. And the fact that Stephen is willing to write about it is such a beautiful and powerful testament to forgiveness and love and and hope that no matter what we've done no matter what's been done to us there's nothing that cannot be forgiven Thank you so much for listening today to the Golden Rule Revolution. My name is Lucas Mack, and as always, it is such a pleasure having you join me on this journey to see people treat people like people and nothing less. I'll talk to you on the next episode.